From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits radio show for Wednesday, 7th of August, 2019, Episode 4. And here's your host, Tom Winifrith. Indeed, it is Tom Winifrith with the fourth edition of Share Profits Radio, brought to you not from Wales by 30 Yards, uh, but this week from Greece, as it will indeed be next week. Thank you for all the kind comments, which I've received by uh, email and on Twitter from people who've enjoyed listening to the three previous editions of Share Profits Radio, which is still up there if you want to listen. Uh, Thanks also to the people who sent through the defamatory comments, uh, the abuse and the hostility. Uh, Principally, I suspect those folks are shareholders in Viserion. Hasn't done terribly well since uh, that great interview I did with Lucian Myers last week. Uh, the shares seem to be in something of freefall. Well, these things happen. As you know, uh, this program is brought to you thanks to the kind sponsorship uh, of Riverfork Global Capital. Uh, Riverfork Global Capital is the leading provider of funding to junior listed companies on the AIM Casino. It provides equity and debt funding. Uh, with instruments including short-term loans, asset-backed loans, convertible debt, royalty and equity financings. Uh, Over the summer, Riverfort will be hosting a series of masterclasses, both online and in person, to help company directors understand how to access and optimise funding for their companies. If you're interested and you happen to be on the board of an AIM-listed company, please contact info at riverfortcapital.com for more information and uh, tell them where you heard about uh, uh, their services uh, on this most excellent podcast. I've had a couple of people saying, yeah, Riverford, they provide death spiral financing. It's all the same, isn't it? Oh, well, it's not. Uh, convertible loan notes are one of the instruments that Riverford provides, uh, but not all convertible loan instruments are the same. I do happen to believe that Riverford is very much best of breed in this respect, which is why I'm very happy for them to sponsor this podcast. To give you an indication of the range of variety, uh, there was an announcement this week from a company called Kefi Minerals. I should declare that I own a few shares in Kefi Minerals. My colleague Steve Moore wrote about the announcement. It's a refinancing using a convertible loan note. Uh, Steve was not, I think, particularly enamoured with the loan note, but he regards the shares as being cheap, and I would say there is a very strong case for the shares being cheap. Uh, Kefi owns uh, 50% of a project called Tulu Kapi in Ethiopia, which is a gold mine which should be in production within about 18 months. Funding does appear to have been secured, and Uh, the shares don't appear to me to reflect the underlying value of that asset. And that's at current gold prices. I have a suspicion that gold prices, which have been on a roll, uh, indeed, if you look at them in non-dollar denominated terms, uh, gold prices are, for many currencies, trading at all-time highs. But I think that role is going to continue. And eventually, that will percolate down to seeing material investor interest in mining juniors, those mining juniors who are 
uh, either producing or are close to production. And that is uh, very much why I'm happy to own shares in Kefi. In these uncertain times, everyone should have some gold exposure. Uh, and to me, Kefi seems a perfectly decent counter. And I actually have some time for the company's boss, uh, Harry Adams. Having said all of that, it announced a financing this week, which to me is just a rotten deal. Uh, I would have thought Harry really should have contacted uh, Riverfork Capital and seen if he could do something better. It works like this. A financer, uh, financier who is not named, well, that's a bad thing. Why the hell can't you fess up uh, as to who is providing your short-term financing facility? Why not? Why be opaque about such matters? But a financier is providing a loan facility of £1.5 million. We're told it is unsecured, but actually it's just a convertible loan. Uh, I don't expect this facility will be repaid. It will simply be converted into shares. Now, there are two things about this. Uh, the first is that there is an upfront fee payable by Kefi of £250,000. Of that, £37,500 is in cash. The rest is in shares, which I would expect to be dumped by the provider uh, almost immediately. Thereafter, uh, Kefi can draw down tranches of £250,000 a pop. If it repays any of these tranches, uh, then it can draw down another £250,000 uh, of debt. Uh, if it repays none, it will just go uh, straight through uh, 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 to the £1.5 million. The thing is, uh, I don't expect Kefi to repay this debt. Uh, it will be cleared uh, by, by the issuer, that is to say the provider of the finance, simply converting uh, the tranches of £250,000 into shares, and the shares will be converted at a discount to the prevailing price. So it doesn't matter what happens to the price. Uh, the provider of this loan finance is guaranteed to make a profit. Now, the, the company stresses, Kefi stresses, that the provider of this finance is a significant shareholder in the company or a long-serving, a supportive shareholder in the company, although the provider owns less than 3% of the equity. That's meant to make us think that actually this, these people have stepped into the breach to replace the existing uh, convertible loan uh, uh, facility with one which is more palatable. But in fact, they haven't. That's just a ruse. I don't think this loan provider gives two hoots about the share price. Owning less than 3% of Kefi, uh, we don't know how much less than 3%, but I suspect it's quite a bit less than 3%, only a lot, a lot less than 3% of Kefi is irrelevant. The business model here is very simple. Uh, the loan provider is effectively being given quarter of a million up front, and then it lends that quarter of a million to Kefi, it converts that into shares at a price where it's bound to make money. It's going to make a profit on that 250000 And then it lends the company another 250000 Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. In other words, the amount of capital that this loan provider is going to have to risk is likely to be absolutely zero. 
And as a bonus, by the way, it gets a shed load of warrants with an exercise price of 2.5p, uh, but a strike period of three years. In three years' time, this company is going to be in production. The shares are obviously going to be well over 2.5p. That is free money. That is a bunt. Uh, so it gets the free money from the warrants, and it doesn't have to risk a cent of its own capital in order to be making a guaranteed profit. Well, I can see why anyone would work, uh, want to offer that. Frankly, Harry, come to me. I'll do it. I'll do this. I don't get to risk, have to risk a cent of my own money, and I'm guaranteed to make a profit. What's not to like? Anyone would do that deal. Uh, you have to say, if the provider of such finance is onto such a surefire winner, not a cent of capital employed and a guaranteed profit every time it happens with the warrants as a bunt at the end. If the provider is onto such a massive winner, surely the company's onto something of a loser. It looks to me like it's a bad deal uh, for Kefi, but there are quite a lot of these bad deals around. It is important to look at the terms of every announcement when a company gets some form of convertible loan finance, just to see whether it's a good deal or a bad deal. I can't see that the interests of this loan provider are in any way aligned with those of other shareholders. It seems to me it's just free money for the loan provider. It's a bad deal. Uh, Harry could have done better. Notwithstanding that, I'm happy to own the shares. I think they'll go up. Uh, but really, it's a rotten deal. It serves, uh, uh, it pays to read the small print in such circumstances. Now, on today's show, we have got uh, two guests. Uh, one of them uh, is a convicted fraudster, uh, an and the other one runs a company listed on AIM. Uh, cue the obvious jokes. Ho, 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 ho. Well, who should we start with? Let's start with the guy who runs the company listed on AIM. My first guest today is David Bramhill, who is the CEO, I think, maybe he's the chairman, he'll correct me, uh, no doubt, of Union Jack Oil and Gas, which is listed on AIM. I've invited him on because it seems to be a very popular stock. For the record, I own no shares in Union Jack. I'm not being paid for this interview. We invite CEOs on who I find interesting. We don't charge them anything for it. Uh, and uh, as it happens, we on uh, uh, the Hot Stock Rockets website, which I'm involved in, we've tipped the stock twice and banked profits twice. So it's not currently a live tip. No doubt uh, David thinks that I'm guilty of premature ejaculation, but we'll, we'll come to that uh, later on. David, welcome to the show. Oh, welcome. Already, Tom, in this interview, there's three points. Uh, I'm CEO and chairman. I like to keep an eye on things. It's, uh... Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that bad corporate governance? Shouldn't no, you have someone keeping an eye on you, David? When you read about all the horrible and terrible things that go on in companies, thankfully, not us, it pays. You need a CEO and a chairman to keep an eye on, make sure everything gets done. And they've got a great board to back me up. Uh, right. And also, you know, we, we, we do a good job on our board, I believe so. And... Uh, that's number one, eh? So you don't, you don't think that splitting the roles of chairman and chief executive is necessary, you know, and having sort of, uh, you know, two women on your board and someone who's transgender, you don't think that all that sort of thing is, is uh, totally... 
entirely necessary. Uh, we won't go into what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying. It's the ultimately, if companies, if if a CEO of a company wants to do something bad, he's going to fix his board to do it. All this sort of box ticking about diversity and splitting the roles is not going to stop, you know, the, the Rob Terry's of this world from being crooks. Uh, I, I, you could be right, but I like to think that we got a good board supporting us and looking over my shoulder, and we've got a lot of independents working with us as well. So, you know, my job is to look after shareholders, not directors and myself. Okay. I think what was the one thing I got wrong? What was the next thing I got wrong? Uh, I think you sold too soon. Not to worry. That's my opinion. Well, I'll read yourself in tune. Okay, yeah, well, I've, you know, there's never worse wrong. things than banking a profit, but yeah, never I, wrong, I agree. Never wrong, to take, never wrong to take a profit, Tom. I'm only putting your leg on that one. But it is, it is an odd thing, isn't it, that when you look back, because I know you, you, you buy and sell a few shares yourself, when you look back on the shares which you bought and sold in your life, the biggest mistakes that we all seem to make are not the ones where we lose money because they go down and we lose money. The, the, the biggest mistakes, the biggest regrets, uh, are often the ones where you, you do sell too soon and you miss out on the really big gains. Oh, tell me about it, Tom. And that's normally the way it goes, isn't it? But it is the way. To be honest with you, honest with you I, I only ever invest in myself now. You know, loads of nice shares around and I get tips every single day. Well, David, why don't you pick up a few of these? Why don't you pick up some? And do you know what? I, I'd rather invest in myself. At least I know that the company's being run properly and we're well financed and and you can see these things. If, if things are going to go wrong, you can normally spot these a long, long time ahead, which goes back to your sort of chairman and and sharing role as CEO. So, you know, that's that's what I try and avoid. So you've given up on gambling on AIM casino chips, apart from obviously investing in Union Jack. Oh no, horses as well. Oh, horses. Okay. <laughs> oh, horses is investment. But buying AIM shares—that's gambling. Ah. Pick right ones. You oh, pick right one. It's, I know where you're coming from. Uh, you pick right one. You'll say it wasn't gambling. It's a bloody good investment. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Can we? Can we? Before we go on to Uni Jack, and there's a few sort of macro issues. Um, I've, uh, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm sitting to you recording in uh, in Greece this uh, week. I've just had the pleasure of a, a company of my daughter. Uh, who, uh, when she's not going on about being a pescatarian, is going on about global warming and saving the planet. Uh, she seems to think that in 30 years' time, no one's going to be using oil anyway. Uh, such is going to be the government putting taxes on carbon fuels and the desire of people of her age uh, never to use carbon fuels. Uh, she thinks we're all going to be using renewable energy. There's going to be no hydrocarbons. And as such... Wouldn't that be rather bad news for investing in any oil stock? Without wishing to offend your daughter, I... I no, go ahead. Go ahead. She's a teenager. She's no, I, I wouldn't be so rude. No, there will, but there will always be a place for, for oil companies, especially in the UK. Because, unfortunately, a lot of people, first of all, they don't even know there's oil in, in, the Great, in Great Britain. It's amazing, but there's a lot of it onshore, as we're beginning to find out. But oil isn't just used to run cars. And if I, I don't know much, how much time I have, but Graham Bull, who does lecture to universities sometimes, 
you know, he, he used to do a lot of this stuff in front of students. So we'll all be saying, oh, we don't like oil. We're going to have to stop it, stop production. Without oil, I think the world would come to an end. But if you've got a headache, what do you take? Maybe an Aspro, paracetamol, painkillers. If you've got blood, high blood pressure. The majority of these tablets are all made from oil products. Your T-shirt are made from products. Even on an electric car, your steering will be made from an oil product. So there's a million and one things, and probably not exaggerating, probably are a million and one things, where which are made from hydrocarbon projects, properties. That's why you have fastness crackers in, in uh, oil refineries, because they don't just produce oil, they produce all sorts of different types of products. But aren't we, get, aren't, we in, aren't we going to find an economic situation where as the bigger fields get tapped out, people will have to go to more marginal fields, smaller fields using shale oil production, et cetera, et cetera. The cost of oil will go up and that will encourage people to make substitutions to whatever. Um, and that, that will be bad news for your industry. There may be some... <laughs> In 40 years' time, unfortunately, Tom, I will, probably won't be a, won't be around. I'll be about 120 unless they can find something to make me more. So I'm afraid, afraid that's it. At the end of my time with companies. But seriously, in 40 years' time, I'm sure that there will be maybe companies like us that have evolved themselves. And you're probably right. A lot of these marginal fields will be reapers. That's what we do now, really, effectively. When you look at some companies, especially in the US. They go back to stranded oil, stranded gas, go back to old wells with a new with a type of uh, production technique. So yeah, you know, I, I I certainly wouldn't agree with with the fact that I think everybody tries. Like if you talk to me about global warming, I'd say to you, well, yeah, I, I agree, but it's not just about oils. I, I think we're probably about half a percent. Uh, I don't know the figure, but there's far worse things around if you take the world. pick you up on that you are a totally non-fracking company it's conventional onshore uk can you explain to me why in america there's a lot of people doing fracking and it doesn't seem to cause any problems but as soon as anyone sort of suggested a company might be doing fracking here immediately you get a whole load of sort of bearded lunatics and that's just the women coming out and saying uh, it's causing earthquakes and it's polluting the water supply and it's going to be the end of the planet is that, are they talking nonsense? Look, certainly now, I wouldn't call them, call them lunatics, Tom. They got their, their views. But what, what does annoy me, we, we, West New labelled as fracking. Not at all. We're not fracking. We've got wrestle, fracking. It's not fracking. We've got Piscifor, labelled as fracking. We're not fracking. So this is where, where I have an issue, where, where people actually say that we're a fracking company. We're not. We, you know, the, the, the people say that in an attempt, basically, because they don't want to have any oil fields in their back garden. That would be correct. But 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 can you explain to me, 
is fracking dangerous? Oh, Tom, I've that's not a yes or no. I've it's impossible to give a yes or a no. But if you're asking me, does it cause an issue in America? I would say absolutely not. I've been involved with fracking in America for 30 years, and I've never known an issue or anything go wrong with with fracking. But what I will say that the area that is being fracked in America is underneath somebody's house. Oh, but not that wouldn't necessarily mean to say there is there is a danger, but you need to know exactly what's going on with geology. And and I think it's something new. It's like anything that comes along which is new. It's like, you know, still some people think the world is flat. Uh, that's after 500 years of of people arguing about it. Uh, so, ah, look, Tom, it's fracking. It's a it's something which we would never get involved in. But if you're asking me personally, what do I think? I think it could be a, co a country maker for us. So you'd have no problem if someone wanted to start fracking a few miles down the road from where you lived? No, not at all. Hand on heart. Wouldn't, wouldn't bother me whatsoever. Okay, I'll just put in oh. for an exploration license, uh, David. I look forward to your support at the public inquiry. Um, not they find anything because we're in Devon and it's nearly all granite. You won't find anyone <laughs> here. <laughs> okay. Um, now, the UK onshore, uh, if we were to wind back about 10 years, people would have said there's a whole load of small deposits, you know, the East Midlands field, uh, a few in the south of England. There is one aberration, which is Witch Farm, which is just about onshore and is It's an offshore field being discovered onshore. Okay, it's close enough to being. To, yes, I, I agree. It is offshore, but it's uh, the, the 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 pipeline, the um, the drilling comes from onshore. It's close enough to being onshore, but historically, which farm was discovered? One, the seventies, was it? I think it was 75. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure, but it was uh, uh, around that time. Oh, I remember it well. Goodness me. In fact, uh, one of our directors was involved with uh, Gold Petroleum, Dick Stabbins. He, he was part of that conglomerate that found it. So that was, you know, th this is 1975 is the only uh, we'll cheat and call it uh, a, a giant or large onshore discovery. And for 25 years or 35 years, in fact, no one else made the claim that we could have giant onshore finds. Uh, then along came um, a man you may have heard of uh, called David Lenigas, yeah. um, who claimed that in the Weald Basin there was... Uh, depending on which uh, uh, um, of his uh, outbursts you read, six, fifty, or a hundred billion barrels of oil, and it was potentially bigger than Saudi Arabia and the answer to our national needs. Did you buy into that? No, of course not. Right. No, course Do you not. believe? Uh, my my belief has always been that within the wheel basin there will be a number of small fields but we don't know how commercial they are or whether they are commercial. And the idea that there would be um, the new Saudi Arabia was fantasy. Probably that shouldn't have said, but I'm certainly, you know, I'm not going to knock the guy for saying all that stuff. Some, look, some people promote, some people don't promote. I prefer to be un under promote and overachieve. That's what we're trying to do with Union Jack. But if people want to 
you know, everyone that buys shares, I suppose, is over 18 and they, they know what they're getting into. But, but I, do, I, do, I do like the wheelbase, I have to say. But uh, um, I would have thought, I, I honestly believe that, that UCOG are doing a good fist of things at the moment. I, at least they're in production. They're making, making some money out of that oil and selling it. And I, and I truly believe that once they get all those wells drilled, it would be a very, very nice company. So I certainly I wouldn't knock the company in the nicest way. And I think David Lenny Gas is gone. You've got uh, a, a different board there now. And look, I found I know you've got your thoughts, but I've always found them to be be fine. And as I say, they're in production. They give a monthly update, and, and well done them. Could you, did you, do you not perhaps accept that one of the reasons why some of us are a bit nervous about investing in AIM oil stocks is that we have had a history of uh, um, individuals who are prone to exaggerate, shall we say, a little bit? I mean, I, I, you know, there are some obviously who've committed outright fraud, like that chap Zaza from Frontera Resources. Uh, uh, my good friend Jimmy Lyer Ellison of Sefton Resources, who I uh, got sacked. Um, and through, going back over the years, we can think of other people who um, were pretty shameless in what they claimed. It does give your sort of industry a bit of a reputation, doesn't it? I, I think it's always always had that reputation, to be honest, Tom. It's I a bit like uh, Mark Twain on mining stocks. About oil wells, wouldn't they? I know. It was, actually, it was about a mine. It was about a mine as a, a hole in the ground surrounded by a bunch of liars. But uh, <laughs> I, I will say to you that, you know, you go back to people, you know, I think in the 1960s and 70s and early 80s, the promoters then would make David Lenny Gass and a lot of people look like novices, to be honest with you. <laughs> No, seriously, honestly, you know, the stories that I I, I could tell you about, about things, you know, I remember the old Irish docks, Eglinton, Eglinton Oil and Gas, run by our old friend Emmett O'Connell, I think he's a great chap. You know, they were the days he could promote anything <laughs> to, the, to the Arabs. But, so I think yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I think we could accept that uh, in days gone by, people really were incredibly naughty, but... Still, there is, there isn't, you know, there is an element of naughtiness with, or uh, overconfidence, shall we say, within your sector. Oh, if you're talking about the sector, yes. If you're talking about Union Jack, no. I would always be, I, my, I'm a miserable so and so as I get older, Tom, and I never take. Yeah, you're pretty really miserable when you were younger. Uh, I don't, I don't want to uh, let you off that one. Oh, maybe, maybe I was. I just, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I was, but you—you uh, you never know. But what I will say is, you have to be a super optimist to run a company like like Union Jack, like any other oil company, a junior. God, it's difficult. You're always thinking about funding, oil price. Will the well come in? There's a million and one things to worry about. But you always keep keep a, I suppose a, a you know, stoic. You have to keep a stiff upper lip. That things are going to work for you. Like, let's let's be honest, Tom. Union Jack for two years, we I think we've drawn the short straw in just about everything we touched, but never lost, never lost hope or thought that perhaps this won't work in the end. And and I like to think we're seeing a, a great big fat light at the end of the tunnel now. 
that's not promotion. I'm just talk, telling you the truth. Oh, obviously. Okay, I will let you come to that um, uh, 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 to your sober assessment of your prospects in a second. Um, but I wanted to ask you just uh, one thing: the the isn't one of the attractions of investing in the sector the fact that uh, private investors do tend to get so incredibly carried away, so they will uh, misprice risk and uh, overprice uh, uh, optimism. So when things are going your way, when you're on a bit of a roll, people can get way too excited. So I have seen various uh, um, uh, 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 amateur investors, I don't know what uh, the phrase you would use, um, speculating that your shares, which are today worth about 0.27 or something, yeah. could be worth 3, 4, 5p. Uh, now, I suppose they could be, um, but based on what we know now, even you would admit that is somewhat optimistic, wouldn't you? Do you know what, Tommy? I, I take this the right way, and anyone that might listen, like the reason you you run an oil company or any company for that matter is to try and make it into something. Now we're very lucky with with West Newton. If it is as good as we believe it is, then these predictions could be quite right. But there's a hell of a lot of work still to be done. Really, really. So if, if every if all the boxes get and and what happens happens, what we hope is going to happen, then yeah, shares could go up, you know, but still a lot of value. And that's, I please don't think I'm trying to promote it. I'm not, I'm just being honest with you. You know, we, we de-risked a hell of a lot of our project for the last few months. And I believe that if West Newton happens, like we, as you know, there's another well, there's a West Newton B well, which is, Maybe, maybe it'll get grilled, maybe it won't, but it does. It's four, two, three miles away from the existing discoveries. And if that was to discover oil, gas, whatever, then you would be talking about complete re-racing for the company. But it, at this moment in time, there's still a hell of a lot of work to get done. But, okay, before, before I, I, which, you know, neurology is, is one uh, uh, aspect of oil exploration. But as we've seen with the recent news from Brockham, Brockham is only six miles from Horse Hill, yet it appears that the Kimridge at Brockham uh, is certainly not commercial, whereas the Kimridge at Horse Hill has been turning out 220 barrels a day. Yes. So there's no, guarantee, there's no guarantee on neurology, is there, David? There's no guarantee on anything in this life, especially with geology, Tom. Okay. No that's, that's why we drill holes. Because that's the only thing that's going to find. You know, you you can postulate all you like about what if this, what if that. This prospect looks the same. You need to drill it. You're going around all the time. Can I ask you one sort of general question about oil companies and small oil companies, which has always confused me? When they get to the stage where they are producing... Why is it that they don't uh, just pay dividends and buy back shares, etc.? Why is it that they, uh, having got lucky, if you like, at the casino, they put their money on blood chips on red, red came up, they've got a lot of cash coming in, and instead of just returning that to shareholders, there is always this tendency to say, well, let's go back to the table and put it on red again, i.e. to reinvest cash I, generated I, in exploration. I, I, that's something, that's a really good question, because I, I would never, ever push for luck too far, because you never, ever know. And if we if we did meet the success that I hope we meet, 
I certainly wouldn't have a problem. Now, don't whoever's listening to this, I'm not saying that this is going to happen. This is pure speculation. It's not hype. But should should anything happen with any of our projects, and we receive a lot of money, I can guarantee that that be given back to the majority of it will be given back to shareholders. But if if you were just to get your any one of your projects, I'm going to go through the three uh, key ones very shortly. If they were to get to the stage where they were producing oil and generating free cash flow, would you give a commitment to say, right, at that point, once we pay for the development of other proven discoveries, so let's just say West Newton was your lead discovery and was produced yeah. throwing off money, once we pay for the development of Russell and Biscothorpe, then we've got these three things on stream. We're not going to risk the proceeds by going to uh, 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 explore somewhere else. We're just going to set, uh, uh, pay out a huge dividend. That would Wouldn't be that be, why? I, I'd love to see an oil company do that. I never see it. So would I. But it's, it's a strange, it's a difficult question to to answer, really, because you you don't see many oil companies giving dividends, do you? You like, like no. you say, you you don't. Too too maybe I'm old school, but I think a dividend is lovely. Well, you've got a few shares in Union Jack, so I could see why you'd want one. But I, I, okay, I'll just leave that question in the air. Now, let's go to uh, uh, Union Jack as things stand. Uh, what's the uh, sort of 0.26p? Um, what's the market cap? 35, 36 million. That's an awful lot. What's your cash position? Uh, 3 million. Does that fund you for. Because uh, one of the other things that really pisses people off about uh, oil, oil companies is that you get good news, you get good news, um, you get Chris Oil doing a podcast somewhere and talking about how the shares are worth 50 quid, the shares go up and bang! Not, not that you're putting him up to it, he needs no encouragement. No, the boy, please, please, the boy please, needs please. no encouragement to talk his own book. But um, you get that, and then bang, the next thing that happens is you get a placing. Do you feel that you're fully funded for your current needs? For current needs, yes. You're uh, right. So for current for current needs, but if something happened, I you can never rule. I don't tell lies, Tom. If something was to come along which needed funding, I would have no hesitation and and don't take that that there's a placing coming because there's a bloody well not placing coming. I can put my hand on my heart on that one, but you know I don't think. Unfortunately, if you were junior oil company. You need the help of investors to get that company running. The money is our fuel. That's our petrol. But, 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 or embarrassed, as long as you're buying something which you can actually say this is giving the shareholder value. Okay, like but you, why, why would you want to? Well, I'm, I'm questioning now. Why would Union Jack want to buy any other assets right now? Surely we've uh, got three. We've got three smashing assets, all that would need money spent on in the future. If you want mm -hmm. to grow a company, it's not just a one well wonder. If you need to grow, you need to drill wells. And that's the only way that you you grow a company by an acquisition. But okay. where, where the technique is, where the skill is knowing the right time to monetize your investment. And that's... 
is there any way you could monetize your investment? Because the, the, the best way to monetize investments and assets uh, is, of course, to do a corporate sale of an asset. Is there any uh, one out there who is a potential sort of hoover up of UK onshore assets? It just seems to be an incredibly fragmented industry. I, if you were to ask me that five years ago, I'd say life is difficult. If you're asking, you, you're now asking me the question now, I'd say that you've got a whole bunch of people, companies, highly interested in, and some of the names, I'm not going to give you the names on this interview, but I do know of many companies who are highly, highly interested in some projects on Shore UK. So wouldn't that be the answer to all the funding problems or the fund, potential funding issues of Union Jack would be to sell your stake or sell part of your stake in one of your prospects, get a few million quid in, and then be able to fund the others through to uh, production without having to tap up investors again. There's always a point where, you, like I mentioned earlier, there's a point where you need to create maximum value. And it's yeah. only when that point is reached that I would be happy to even consider selling any of our assets. Okay, let's... I, still think, I still think this journey is just, we're just on the first rung of the ladder, to be honest with you. And I okay. generally believe that we've got a, a great future. I may be totally wrong, but we've got three, what I consider to be very, very good projects, either one of which could be a company maker. That's no secret. That's in okay, all which do you think is your most exciting prospect? Without a doubt, West Newton. What percentage of West Newton do you own? 16.65%. 665%. Excuse my uh, uh, woeful ignorance, but where is West Newton? It's, we all know where Hull is, it's the city of culture. You, yeah. Yeah, and we're in Beverly, literally eight miles north of Hull. I'll tell you what, I've been to Beverly. It's where the South Yorkshire County Council Pension Fund is based. There you go. When I was a stockbroker, I went to visit them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where Beverly is. No, maybe it wasn't the South. The South Yorkshire was Barnsley. Beverly was East Yorkshire, but whatever. I've been there. I've been to Beverly. East Riding, East Riding, to be exact. Right. Okay. So it's 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 in that part of the world. So it's the northeast of England, which actually is that sort of trend: East Midlands, Northeast England, North Sea. It's sort of it's all in much of a line. Uh, it has historically been hydrocarbon rich. Yeah, and you, you've got it. When you mention North Sea, what what I believe with West Newton, we we're looking. Uh, almost a, an offshore project onshore, which makes it good enough for us. Very good. How big potentially could West Newton be? Tom, I would rather not answer that question to you because I, we, even now, it's bigger than a lot of fields that have been found onshore UK. And I have to temper my words. You know that. I'm not going to come on your show and and say this is you know, all I can say. We're really, really. I hate using the word excited. It seems an odd word, a strange, but we we love we love the project, and it's probably the best project I've ever been involved in in my life. And, and as you know, from 40 years in the game, I've been involved in some really, really what we consider good projects, especially with the old team that I used to be with, with John Teeling and everyone. So, uh, no, this is. A, for, for us, it's, it's excellent. 
Okay, well, let's just let, rephrase that. How much money will need to be spent on West Newton to A, prove it is commercial, and B, get it into production? Right, okay, but we, in order to prove commerciality, that will be proven in this next well, sorry, in the, in the testing that's ongoing, or it's just, uh, as you probably saw the, the RNS this morning, community, there's site, there's equipment arriving on site as we speak. That's no secret because Rathlin have put that out this morning and the community focus. Uh, so effectively, we've already paid our share of that testing. That's all done and dusted. So we're going to know in eight weeks' time what we have. We know that the gas is a given. It's mission accomplished there. But we did find a, a hydrocarbon liquid column, which nobody expected. And this is what's being tested initially now. So in order to say how much money will be needed to put West Newton into full production, i.e. it could be anything. I think I'd be quite happy, Tom, to come back on your program in 10, 11 weeks' time and talk about it with you and say, right, this is what's going to happen. Are you, are you saying that in eight weeks' time, uh, you will be able to put out a statement saying, we believe this field is commercial, we believe the net present value is X, and we believe that the capital cost of getting it into production is Y, and this is our timeline. Why, why wouldn't we be able to do that? That's the whole reason why you drill it well and why you test it. So in eight to ten weeks' time, we will know that. It will be either a, a raging success or it won't be quite as raging. A non-raging. So is that it'll no. be either be a raging success or no, a non-raging yeah. success? As far as I'm concerned, the gas is already a given. That was our mission. The, this is an unknown benefit. And we need to see that this, this flows and what it is. So in, in eight, is it commercial on the basis of the gas alone? I would suggest yes, but I do need to see figures, Tom. I'm not going to come on to your show and say, oh, yeah, this, you know, I don't, I, that's not the way I operate. I need to know certain things. So, but and you I, would expect that within eight, eight to ten weeks, you would be able to say that the gas is commercial, but we now know whether the oil is commercial as well, and that would help us to get to an idea of the net present value of it. At the current, the current net present value, not the, not the net present value of the whole project. Right. We're talking about two wells here. You're talking about the West Newton A1 and the West Newton A2. With the West Newton A2, once we've tested it, we will be able to say that this particular part of the program, the NPV is XYZ. At the moment, the, N the NPV is about $300 million. That, that's a given. That is a, that's a Deloitte CPR, given the value of what we have is over $300 million. That's gross. So that would, that would be $48 million net to you? Yes. Or something like that. My maths is, is pretty wonky. But yeah, $48 million net to you, $40, $51 million net to you. Uh, that would be the net present value. But of course, can you excuse my scepticism here? Over the past, God knows how long I've been writing about oil stocks, I've seen company after company put out 
a competent person's report saying the net present value of this asset is X, and then it turns out to be worth only a fraction of that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Tom. These, these things happen, unfortunately. I just like to think that we're extra, extra cautious, and you have to be. We're having a little bit of a poor connection, David. Keep talking. Okay. I, I, as I was saying, Tom, we, we need to be ultra, ultra cautious and not, not promote at the moment. Let's just get on with the job and see what we have. And then we can be quite happy to talk about it. David, you'll forgive my skepticism. You talk about a 300 million valuation for West Newton on a competent person's report. But in the decades that I've uh, uh, been writing about oil, I've had so many companies say, yeah, we've got an independent, competent person's report, a CPR, etc. It should be an incompetent person's report in some cases. And they value our asset at X. And when it comes to the acid test of a trade sale or of obtaining project finance for it, it's worth nothing like that. I think the biggest example is range resources, had a competent person's valuation uh, giving a present value of its American assets at $150 million. A few months later, they, they put them up for sale and they, re, they fetch $1 million. You may understand, I'm a bit skeptical no, about the no, CPO. No, as, as, as long as you're not saying. David? I, I, think, I think we keep echoing. Keep going, keep talking. Okay, I, 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 I agree with you to some sense about competent person's reports. First of all, it depends on the company you use. Like, we're in the habit of using top class people for hours. And they, they don't always get it get it right, but they earn a pretty good ballpark. You know, there are some competent persons where, you know, we would never use. But the, the people that did the one at West Newton were uh, Deloitte. They got pretty good name, especially with the other assets we're looking at now. So, and remember, there is a well already drilled. It's been analysed to death, the West Newton A, West Newton A1. So we're, we're confident on that there. Right. Are you, are you saying that it depends on who does the CPR? As long as you, it's, you want to use someone who's got a reputation to lose, so isn't going to just come up with a ludicrous number? I, I think uh, you need to be extremely careful on who you choose. Anyone that's never used a competent person, what you want is really somebody who's a bit of a bully. We'll always look on the, the black side of life rather than be competent. And these guys are almost like, I know what you're going to say, they were auditors through that, but you need a proper auditor. And this is what these guys are, it's the majority of them. Our auditors, they're there to look for holes and so many different elements to look at on the The people you use are quite reliable, and you would know if something, if something is wrong, you would question it. I know our people would be part a good team, a good geological team, and we would question anything that we didn't agree with. You have to, that's how you get into these projects by asking questions. And not always do you get the right answer, so we're gone. Okay, but in terms of valuing West Newton, if we have this current estimate of its value of 300 million, what you're saying is that the, the analysis of the existing drilling uh, could see that number go up, but it could actually see the number go down as well. Absolutely. 
Okay, so we'll know more in 10 weeks' time. In terms of time frame, assuming that it was seen to be commercial, oh, how long before West Nation could be throwing off cash for you? I'd rather, because we're still in the middle of operations, I'm sure you understand, and, and people listening into this, at the moment, I'm not really prepared to comment because at the moment, we, we'd like to keep everything under wrap, not for any reason other than keep things going smoothly on site whilst we're doing this exercise. Okay, roughly, roughly speaking, David, if the results came in good, are we talking about this thing being able to produce by 2020, 2021, 2022? What sort of, 2042? What sort of time frame? Okay, can we not talk about West New just say, well, if we had something similar to this, how about that? Yeah. Okay, if you had something similar to West Newton, you could, if if the oil flows, you could be probably producing in 2021. Right. It all depends on what, what would we want to do. You know, obviously we work with partners. If we had a, a situation which is worth a lot of money, you go back to your dividend situation. That, like, Really, I, I think we're really, like in a grand national, we jumped a few fences and all looking good. There's a long, long way to go, Tom. All I can really say at this moment, if it's as good as we think it is, then you're going to be hearing a lot about it in the future. Okay. Can I just, Western, if it's up near Hull, where is your wrestle asset? Uh, wrestle is literally to the west of Hull. Okay, so in the same part of the world. Now, at Wrestle, you've historically had a few problems with the local authority. There are a bunch of commies, and they tried to stop you uh, exploring. Tom, Tom, you get me in awful trouble. I'm not. That's okay. Opinion, not, not my, opinion is, my opinion is there are a bunch of commies. Your opinion is uh, that they're the fine elected representatives of people doing a marvellous job. It's, but called they, um, it's called democracy. Yeah, I know, I know. It's lamentable, lamentable. But um, in in the uh, in there, you had a few problems with the local authority seeking to stop you explore. Is there any possibility that West Newton, you could have similar problems? I'm not envisaging it. Any anything is possible. I'm I'm not one of these people who say, oh no, never in a million years or all that, because these things come back to bite you in the backside, as you know. Yeah. So far, relations are very, very, very good. And anyone can go onto a raffling website and what these guys do to keep the community informed is probably, I've never seen a company like it in the UK, to be honest, and maybe a lot of these operators should think about doing the same thing. But this is what it's all about. It's about telling people what's happening, how these things operate, have open evenings, take them onto site. So in answer to your question, I would be highly surprised if there are issues, this is a really a one-off. This, this business with Wrestle, I've never known anything like it. I really uh, at, at Wrestle, what, what, what's your stake in Wrestle? That's twenty-seven and a half percent, quite significant. And, and as, as I understand it, there the local authority, uh, uh, the the fine upstanding members of the local community, gave you a knockback. But now you said you're going to appeal, and they're not going to fight the appeal. So you are going to get permission to uh, explore. I would have thought so, except at the end of the day, it's all down to the inspector. But if the main protagonist is withdrawing all all uh, evidence and not, not fighting it, then I I think you can assume or hope that you're going to get the result that you like. 
Uh, and, and at Wrestle, what's the state of play? You have, has it ever been explored before? Uh, no, we were the first ones to ever go there. And uh, we thought the Wrestle one well 2014, 2015. Great discovery. It flowed 715 barrels of oil equivalent from three zones. And we would be stopped. We're allowed to do 500 barrels a day. That gives us 117, 127 barrels a day, 137, 137. If you work that out, then that, that puts the company puts Union Jack into profit. Because our, our costs are very, very low. You know, when, when I look at some of the costs that these companies take to run for a year, they, they horrify me. We've no real offices. I, I've got a small office in Bath, which I pay towards the renting, but I've got a financial controller in Bath, and I work most of the time out of my office in Devon. So there's no no rents. We, we keep everything like, I think it's a known fact that everything in our company costs below a million pounds a year to run. That's everything, including salaries. Okay, so you're saying that uh, Wrestle, if uh, uh, you get permission, uh, will it be another exploration well, or will, will it be an appraisal development well? Oh no, that's it. That, that will be the that will be the, the well, the, the production well. We've all, we've already done done the test, and what we would need to do now is just get it work up and up and running, and away you go. You you're selling selling uh, oil to the local refinery. Uh, uh, what would be the capital cost of getting uh, uh, it up and running? Oh, the cap the cost to us would be about half a million. And then, so you're saying that if you if, if if you get the right result now with Wrestle, for half a million quid, you could be generating enough cash from there to cover all of your PLC costs and a little bit more. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's pretty simple. Okay, yeah. fine. You can work that out for yourself. Now, today's oil price, like, and you're looking at a lot of these older wells, they, they cost quite a lot of money to keep to keep going on maintenance. But when you've got a nice fresh well the operating costs the wrestle would be about eight to twelve dollars which is nothing so all the rest is in bank account. but isn't the problem david you did the flow test back in 2014 isn't the problem with all of these fields that it flowed whatever it flowed 750 barrels a day back then but when you actually bring it on production uh, uh then there'll be a, de a natural decline in production there would be a natural decline but that what we've got, remember, we've got three different zones. You've got the ash over grit and Pennison flags. And when, when you deplete from one, you just move on up and you produce from another zone. And when that zone is gone, you then, you then produce from another zone. So you, the, the actual license is for 15 years production. So I think that tells you that there's actually 15 years of minimum of life. Like when you take the old, uh, with Europa, they've got well producing from the same uh, same situation as we have, same formation, which should have been dry within 18 months. 30 years later, it's still producing. So how do you work that out? So you you would assume, but you would assume that production would go down? Oh, of course. Over those 15 years? Oh, of course, over 15 years it would, yes. But when you, when you look at the money that we spent on it, compared to the production we will get, you will soon see pretty, pretty quick payback on that. Our, okay. Our payback would be 18 months. 
Okay, got it. Right, now, finally, uh, your final asset, which you, you get excited about, is Biscothorpe. Where's that? Uh, we were basically, it, it's a really, really weird situation in Biscothorpe. We drilled the well, and instead of coming up high, low, high, we, we were low, and or, or vice versa. But what happened? We didn't find what we expected to. We didn't hit the the main target, which remains untested, but we did find a hydrocarbon column in the dynamic, which is a lot lower. So effectively, what's happening, we've gone back to the drawing board of the seismic, that's being reprocessed, with the well still open, ready for a sidetrack. So the hope, the hope here is that we find a, a, a nice new target within two kilometres of where the well is, and then we can redrill. Where, where in the world is Biscothorpe? Where in Britain is that, it? That is actually, again, we're still on the East Midlands trend and we're just a little bit below Lincoln. Right, right. Now, um, just uh, and the Biscothorpe, um, what would be the cost of this sidetrack well? About £800,000. Okay, so 800000 for that, 500000 for Wrestle, a million quid... Uh, for your PLC costs over the next 12 months, uh, and then whatever you need at West Newton, it sounds like that three million isn't going to last forever. Never does. But hopefully, right. hopefully, hopefully with Wrestle coming on stream, that would be a great, great help. And like I said to you earlier, every company needs to raise money until it's in actual production, until it's made it. So I'm not going to be shamefaced about saying, if you're asking me, Will we ever need money again? I'd like my answer would be I bloody well hope so. If you're asking me, is there anything coming along? I'd say no, absolutely not. I think you've known long enough to trust me on that one. I my assumption would be that if you got spectacular news out, I mean, if the news out of West Newton was rubbish, then you'd have to re rethink your business plan. But if the news out of West Newton was spectacular and the shares went higher, if I was running your company, and thankfully your shareholders are not. I'd be tempted to do a top-up fundraise at that point into strength. Well, I'm not expecting you to comment on that, David. Um, now, one final question. It was announced this week that one of your directors, Joe uh, uh, O'Farrell, who I should say is an absolutely top guy, and I like him a lot. Uh, he probably thinks I'm a total wanker, but I'll ignore oh, that. Tom, he actually does. Oh, he likes me too. Okay, right, okay. That's good. Like, like me, and he's one of the few people that actually like you, honestly. Okay, right, okay. Well, we found two people who like me today. That'll, that'll do for a year. Now, you gave Joe, uh, I think, 80 million share options. Yes. It, obviously, the, the, the cash cost of giving him 80 million share options is zero, but there is a dilutive effect to all other shareholders. What evidence do you have that giving Joe 80 million share options is going to allow him to enhance shareholder value. Surely shareholder value will be enhanced by the success or failure of the drill bit. Yes. Yeah. Uh, however, it wasn't just, wasn't just Joe. All, all the directors, uh, we, we've had Union Jack for five years. Yeah. And the, the, these options, uh, it's only been the last year that we have awarded that every, you have to take it for granted, take it as red, you may or may not agree. Every company that I know of has got an option scheme. If you look at the annual reports, you'll see those option schemes. 
you're allowed to issue 10% of issued share capital as option. They are as an incentive. I would say I'd rather not see this as a reward because for four or five years, our directors have had no options whatsoever. And also, what I will say, and this isn't a plea for a pay rise, don't think this for one minute. I, if I said to you that our, our executive director is on £50,000 a year, you probably wouldn't believe me, but it's an absolute fact. So I see this as being, again, I'm absolutely all for my board being rewarded because the salaries, I say, nobody is taking, this is not a lifestyle company, Tom. I, you would have to agree. I know you're a cynical old so-and-so, but even you would have to agree that we are not a lifestyle company. Far from no, I, I, I take your point on that. Uh, but I think, okay, so we can agree that the options are a reward rather uh, and part of a total package based on a low salary uh, rather than uh, something that's going to change the behaviour of Joe. Uh, when you take Graham Bull on none it's he, he is, our, he is our, our finder. He goes out. He's the guy that goes out and finds the project for us. And so far, he's delivered three really really cracking project to us so again he's on 25 grand a year and a bit, a bit of uh, a few fees for being a consultant so again he gets rewarded for that okay i take that point that's a very fair answer now finally david um just one question please don't take this the wrong way okay how old are you you <laughs> I nearly said you never ask a woman her age. But God, I don't. You're not a woman. I know. I know we live in a gender fluid world, but you're definitely not a woman. How old are you? Why did you ask the question? I I, 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 I could look in the annual report. Save me the trouble. I'm 68. Do you think? Uh, do you think in terms of uh, you know uh, getting to a stage where you might make an exit? Because uh, shareholders like to think about this. Not, I'm not saying they want to get you, give you the sack, you know, but they think about there could be some great glory play and, you know, you might go on to have an enjoyable retirement. There's no way in a million years. I'm not in for this for glory or anything like that. I'm, I'm in this for the absolute excitement, which I find every day I wake up, I thank God, but I'm still around to really enjoy my day. And very even when you get the bad time, it's still enjoyed. I know it sounds perverse. You know, you get your good times, but I love this game, and there's absolutely no way that I would ever, whilst my health is as good as it is, and it is, I would never ever dream of it. I'm still, in fact, Tom, I'm not going to say the name, I've still got, I've got the name of my next company all lined up. So but no plans way. yet. Nobody's going to get rid of me that easy, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> on that note, I wish you continued good health, and we'll speak again after the results come out of West Newton. Thank you, Tom. Lovely speaking to you. Bye-bye. Well, that went on a little longer than in, in anticipated, uh, but it was kind of interesting. I've been looking at oil stocks for just under 30 years. Uh, in fact, my 30-year anniversary of looking at them, writing about them, investing in them, uh, will be coming up this September. I've seen an awful lot of people come and go. Um, this is an industry 
which does intend to attract a strange sort of entrepreneur. The thing about oil exploration is it's not really investment. Investment to me is something where you have a very good idea about the profits which a company will make, the cash it will generate. You look at the market cap and you make an assessment. Is this multiple of future profitability or cash generated? Uh, the right one. Is it too high? Is it too low? And on that basis, you decide whether the stock is a buy or a sell. With an oil exploration stock, you have so many variables, it makes forecasting impossible. There is, of course, the oil price. Uh, companies have fixed costs. If the oil price goes up for some reason, uh, that can have a dramatic effect on the free cash flows they can generate. But the reverse can also be true. During my lifetime of looking at oil stocks, the price of a barrel of oil, I think the lowest I remember, was about $12 or $13, and the highest was well over $100. And that can make a big difference to the value of a particular asset or a particular oil company. So you have the oil price risk, a sort of macro risk. You can have political risks. We didn't touch uh, on that view with David Ram. Uh, but I sense that there is a very real political risk to operating in Britain. You always think that Britain is a stable place to do business. In fact, Britain for oil companies has been remarkably unstable because we keep on buggering around with the rate of taxation on oil assets in the North Sea. In terms of fiscal stability, Britain actually ranks very poorly indeed. Politically, it has tended to be more, a more stable place than you know, people in the Middle East uh, or, or, or much of Africa, which is where a lot of the world's oil is produced. Of course, Venezuela uh, being another company in that uh, league. Um, but that may change. David Bramhill referred to the problems which he had uh, with the wrestle field. It seems to me that those problems are probably behind him. Uh, he very tactfully said it was a problem with local democracy. Uh, what he actually meant was it was the problems that the people in the area had elected a whole load of uh, very left-wing Labour councillors, very much signed up to the agenda of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, who would ignore planning officers and simply from an ideological point of view want to stop the development of an oil field in the area which they represented. Uh, it's not uh, going to be an oil field which would damage the environment, would cause any problems for the local people. True, it's such a small development, it wouldn't have created any jobs. But ideologically, because they were opposed to carbon fuels, they wanted to stop it. It wasn't fracking, it was just conventional oil. They wanted to stop it. Now it seems to me that it is possible that we will have a change of government at some stage in the next few months. And it's just possible that the next government could be uh, one led by Jeremy Corbyn, perhaps not in outright government, but as head of a coalition of chaos, uh, perhaps in conjunction with the Lib Dems or the SNP or various other folks, a coalition of chaos where there would be quite a large body of people who would be opposed to onshore oil production in England. Uh, that, to me, is a political risk. And again, in value in oil exploration stock, 
you need to take account of political risk. But the biggest risk, of course, well, there is, there is the risk of financing. Oil explorers, by their nature, are capital hungry until they move from the status of explorer to producer. They constantly need financing. And that is something which is going to be determined by uh, the news the company puts out, the ability of a promoter to spin that story. Uh, you know, David Lenigas would find a, an old oil can in his back garden and would say, yes, I have six billion barrels of oil in my uh, at Horse Hill. Other people might be a little bit more reticent with the claims they make. But it is also determined by the state of the market, uh, both the oil price, if the oil price is high, people feel bullish about oil stocks, and vice versa. But the wider state of the smaller companies' market, right now, it's not a great market for smaller companies. And that can make financing an issue. The biggest risk, however, is just one of exploration. Whatever people tell you, and on bulletin boards, you'll see people talk about a 50% COS chance of success, a 60%, a 70%, whatever, whatever, whatever. Actually, uh, the number of successful commercial wells drilled as a percentage of the total number of wells drilled is something like 15%. Uh, in many cases, it is lower. If you look back at the history of wells drilled by aimlessly companies and look at the bad announcements and the good announcements, how many of those wells have ended up being commercial plays and how many have fallen by the wayside? You'll see I'm right with that 15% number. And that is the big risk. So how does one value an oil stock? Uh, it is not like you are making it legitimate and reasoned assumptions about trends in sales, margins, etc., and therefore arriving at a fairly good or reasonably accurate guess about future profitability uh, or one-year-out profitability or cash generated. There are so many imponderables, it is impossible to value them. Investing in oil stocks is therefore always more, I use the word investing, it's the wrong word, buying shares in small oil stocks is therefore much closer to gambling than investing. It's perhaps one of the reasons why I personally uh, rarely invest in the sector. Uh, one can say that a company with a relatively low market cap and with an attractive prospect, one perhaps that is adjacent to something that has already proved commercial, uh, may be a good risk-reward play, but it is a risk-reward gamble, not a risk-reward investment. Uh, once again, before I move on, I should just remind you that this podcast is not paid for uh, by the companies who I interview. Uh, that is uh, uh, the way that some podcasts uh, operate, uh, principally those over at Vox Markets and the numerous ones done by paid promoters like Edison, Hardman, etc., 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 uh, they exist on a business model of companies paying to appear and being given soft questions. I really hope you don't think that I gave David Bramhill an easy ride. I gave him a tough ride, and I hope that makes it a more of an interesting interview. Uh, we exist as podcasts uh, thanks to the kind sponsorship of Riverfork Global Capital, uh, which is the leading provider of funding to junior listed companies. If you're an AIM CEO or finance director, Keep on listening. Uh, the funding instruments which they offer include short-term, short, medium-term loans, asset-backed loans, convertible debt, royalty and equity financings. 
Over the what is left of the summer, Riverfort will be hosting a series of masterclasses both online and in person to help company directors understand how to access and optimise funding for their companies. So if you are on the board of a listed company, do us a favour. Contact info at riverfortcapital.com asking for more information and saying you heard about it uh, on the Share Profits Radio podcast. Thank you for that message. Uh, And now for something a little bit different. My main guest this week is Sam Antar. When I was about 18, I lived in New York and uh, I used to watch these adverts on television for Crazy Eddie's. They were crazy. They were insane. The adverts were brilliant. They were cult adverts. You may not have bought a television or a fridge or a uh, air conditioning unit from Crazy Eddie's, but everyone knew about Crazy Eddie's. What they didn't know was that it was a complete and utter fraud, and the man behind that fraud was Sam Antar. He was the bookkeeper. Sam, uh, good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me on, Tom. Now, when did you start your life of crime? From when I was 14 years old in 1971. For me, crime crime was just simply a way of life. There was no differentiation. In other words, there was no uh, legitimate life or illegitimate life. My life was just illegitimate. Right, and then that crime was working for crazy eddies. It was a family business. Yes, I was indoctrinated into crime from when I was 14 years old. I went to work for my cousin who was 10 years older than me at uh, Crazy Eddie's. Um, uh, that was in 1971. And uh, they put you through accounting school to train you up to be a, a good criminal? A better criminal. <laughs> um, <laughs> I started off as a stock boy in 1971. Uh, it was a single store chain. It wasn't making a lot of money. In fact, it was losing money. It wasn't even known as Crazy Eddie until 1973. Uh, as it became successful, starting around 1973, um, uh, he wanted to uh, bring the business to the next level. In other words, open up more stores, make it into a regional chain, and later on a national chain. So around 1975, six years after I started, his plan was to put me through college to have a, have a family member that understood accounting on the inside to take the company's business, to help take the company's business to the next level of financial sophistication, which in this case was more forms of income tax evasion, insurance fraud, and eventually taking the company public and engaging in securities fraud. <clears throat> so for when, when you were a private company, basically the game was to understate profits so you uh, didn't have to pay tax on them, Presumably, uh, sales tax was something you charged the customers but didn't always pass Correct. on to the state. From, 19, from 1969, two years before I got there, so I started in 1971. So from 1969 to 1984, Crazy A's was basically a garden variety income tax fraud. It gained the competitive uh, advantage because part of skimming was being able to steal the sales tax off the top. For instance, in New York, right now, we have an 8.875% sales tax. Back then, we had about a 6.5% sales tax. So if you're skimming the cash sales, that 6.5% sales tax adds to your bottom line. 
but it also gives you room to discount to consumers, whereas other retailers that are collecting the sales tax and remitting it to the government don't have that competitive advantage. So that 6.5% of the sales tax that we are stealing gives us room to discount 2, 3, 4, 5, or 6%, and it doesn't come out of our pockets. Also, the skimming helps us pay people off the books, and in this way we evade payroll taxes. So we could, so we could, we have cheaper labor costs to remain competitive and be able to discount consumer electronics. That was rational. Did you? Did you for about okay, so so you're back then. You're, you're bloating your profits. What 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 was driving you to do that? Was it love of money, greed, or the thrill of stiffing over the government? All, all, all of the all of the above. Everybody hates the IRS. <laughs> I can tell you, even when, when, when I was a government witness for many years for the FBI, uh, even the FBI people hated the IRS. <laughs> they're, like the, they're like the bastard, they're like the child that nobody, they're like, they're like, they're like the bastard nobody loves. Nobody likes the IRS. So it's kind of like fair game in everybody's mind. Fuck them. Uh, so it was that, but it also was economics. It was the economics of, of not having to pay taxes. Back in those days, taxes were much, much higher than they are today in the United States. And also, it was to give, gain us the competitive advantage. One of the reasons why the internet retailers were so successful early on was they weren't collecting the sales tax, whereas the brick-and-mortar retailers had to collect the sales tax. In Crazy Eddie's case, we were collecting the sales tax like the brick-and-mortars do today, but we were using part of the money that we stole, part of the sales taxes that we stole, to give discounts to customers and thereby get the advantage over our competitors that otherwise ran their businesses legitimately. Okay, then around about 1984, actually a little bit before 1984, you had a, had a you collectively as the Antar family uh, had a Damascene conversion and you decided that you were going to go public, which meant that you had to stop understating your profits and start making up bogus profits. Right. Around 1979, five years before we go public, we come up with a plan that says, listen, we want to take this company public one day. Now, if you're going to be a public company, it doesn't pay to understate your profits. The economics of white-collar crime were as follows. Is you get a better bang for the buck inflating your profits of a public company, even if it means overpaying your taxes, than understating your taxes as a private company, even if you're evading your taxes because the public company is valued at a multiple of income. Let's say if I skim a million dollars in year one and my income tax rate is 40%, I'm saving 400,000 in taxes. But if I inflate my income by the same million dollars, I may be overpaying my taxes by $400,000, but I have an inflated net income of $600,000. And if my company stock is trading at say 30 times net income of the PE ratio of 30 times earnings, I'm inflating my income by $18 million. $600,000 times 30 is $18 million. So by inflating my income by a million dollars, overpaying my taxes by $400,000, reporting an inflated net income of $600,000, I'm, I'm creating $18 million in fictitious... In shareholder value. You're creating shareholder, shareholder value. value. Most of the shareholder value goes to the Antos. So around 1979, we have to we decide we're going to stop skimming. But instead of stopping skimming all at once, we're going to gradually reduce our skimming until the year we go public. This will give us 
increased growth every year, which is also another factor that goes into evaluating a co public company. In other words, if we can show artificial growth in the years leading up to going public, that will give us a higher valuation because people will think we're a growth stock. So by just the virtue of winding down the skimming uh, over a five-year period, we were able to triple our growth rates just by gradually reducing our skimming and just reporting more of the income that we were already making. Well, why, is it that the, uh, why is it that the analyst didn't say, hang on a second, they're reporting these profits, but the cash flows aren't coming with it. They're paying these taxes, but where's, where's the cash which sort of goes to pay the taxes? How come analysts didn't spot that you were having a pretty high tax rate relative to free operating cash flows? The analysts only care about one thing, what they're going to do to help us go public. <laughs> and the that, those are the analysts that actually work for the firms that take us public. Then the analysts that didn't take us public, they're worried about getting our, grabbing our business later on. Wall Street analysts, they're just a bunch of parrots. They're just a bunch of marketing tools. They're just a bunch of people to be used. In the words of the crazy eddy fraudsters, they're useful idiots. That's what, that's what Wall Street analysts are good for. Didn't, weren't, weren't there any analysts at all who questioned what was going on? No, none of the Main Street, Wall Street uh, analysts. There was only one boutique analyst. His name was Thorn Globe in 1987 or 1986. This is two years after we've gone public, and now we're inflating our income to, uh, to, to cash out on the stock and inflated prices. He called into question our numbers, but... We did, we did something that most, that most of the idiots running corporate, uh, corporate America don't do today, namely Elon Musk. Uh, Elon Musk likes to attack short sellers, likes to belittle them, likes to engage in open war. Our, our, um, our philosophy was people are going to say whatever they're going to say anyway. You're better off ignoring them. If you don't pay attention to them, less people will pay attention to them. So we didn't pay attention to Thor and the Globe. And, Pretty much nobody else did, even though he was right. And uh, we <laughs> kept on doing our fraud, our merry fraud. And these days, have you made contact with that analyst in, now that you're a relative good guy? Have you uh, made contact with him to say, well done? Yeah, I have made contact with him in writing. I haven't met him personally. He's a little bit, he's about, I'm 62. He's in his 80s probably by now. He's a little bit of an older guy. He lives in San Francisco. But I have made contact with him through... Um, through, uh, through email and told okay. him he was right. Yeah. Good. Now, um, the, the, um, the, the point, though, is there's no point in inflating a stock price if you can't sell. But when management sells shares, doesn't that look bad? Yes, of course it does. Anytime management sells shares, they're making a bet that, they can, that, that, that owning the stock is, is less profitable than not owning the stock. Nobody's going to sell stock Unless, they have, unless there's, there's, a, there's a financial emergency, okay? Let's say somebody needs an operation and they, 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 they need to sell their stock and they don't have enough insurance. But other than that, 90, I'd say about 95% of the time, management sells stock because they make the calculation that it's, that, that it's worth more not owning it <laughs> than it is owning it. Otherwise, why sell it? Why sell, why, why sell your own stock to reinvest in another stock if your, your own stock is going to do well by itself? I mean, you're on the inside. You should know better than anybody else. So anytime management sells stock is generally, to me, not a good sign. But how did you get away with it? Because nobody gives a shit, okay? Wall Street doesn't give a shit. All they care about is if you report the numbers, 
and that uh, and that the stock goes up. They don't care about the quality of the numbers. Nobody nobody asks questions. Very rarely do people ask questions. Uh, today you have a little bit more of a vocal short selling community. Then I'll tell you the truth. I didn't even know what the short sellers said or didn't say because I didn't pay attention to them. I couldn't give a flying fuck what the short seller said. All I did was I cooked the books. I made the numbers look good. I didn't engage in, in public squabbles with critics that would distract us from committing a, a, a bigger and better fraud. In the end, of course, it all went horribly wrong at Crazy Eddie's. And uh, basically, you did a deal with the feds, didn't go to prison and ratted well, on your we family. Were, well, here's the thing. We were not a victim of somebody you know, um, blowing the whistle on us. We were not a victim of the auditors stumbling upon a fraud. We were a victim of our own fraudulent success. Uh, a long investor thinking that Crazy Eddie's was a pot of gold because the stock price had dropped in 1987 for various factors, thought that he was going to he was going to take over Crazy Eddie and make it into a into a bigger pot of gold. Uh, and, uh, he eventually takes over the company, buys enough stock, and he takes over the company, finds it's a massive fraud. So we didn't get caught by short sellers. We didn't get caught by the feds. We didn't get caught because of a whistleblower. We got caught because some dumb bag holder thought that this company was worth far more than than, than anybody else. Would, so you, you you were the victim, Sam. You were the victim of your own brilliance in cooking the books. That's right. I am uh, I am one of the few <laughs> that achieved that level of, of notoriety. When when when, um, when you were cooking the books, what do you think was your cleverest accounting wheeze? The Panama pump. That is the most. Uh, that, because money laundering is a much more sexy crime than uh, triple counting inventories, uh, you know it brings in it brings in a lot more. Um, it's much more glamour. <laughs> it's a much more. Let's put it this way: it's 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 a it's a much more um, high end crime for criminals than just garden variety cooking the books. And what we did was was in, after we went public, in some cases we took the money that we skimmed previously and we put it back into the company. Again, it gets back to you get a better bang for the buck, inflating your income as a private, as a public company. You get a better bang for the buck, inflating your income as a public company, even if it means overpaying your taxes, than understating your income as a private company, even if it means you're evading your taxes. Because if we if, if we skim say two million dollars before we went public and saved eight hundred thousand in taxes. After we go public, we take the same two million, we put it back in the company. We're paying the two million. We're paying the eight hundred thousand dollars in taxes we should have paid on the two million, but we still have an inflated net income of a million two. And that inflated net income of a million two, if the stock is trading at thirty or forty times earnings, we're getting we're getting thirty, forty to fifty million dollars in market value. You're and creating what? What value right. creation? Was, so the panel, the panel, right? And the Panama was, pump is you. You right. stuck a couple of million dollars in Panama. And then you book that as orders for Crazy Eddie's, 100% margin, goes straight through to the bottom line. You're a genius. Right. right. We, we, before we went public, we took the money out of Crazy Eddie's. We shipped it to banks in Israel. Uh, after we went public, we, we sent it back into the United States with Panama as kind of like a buffer country. That's why it's called the Panama pump. We brought it back into the United States, and we were showing it as pure profits. Uh, and, and, the stock, and the stock price jumps. Uh, it, it's the basis, it's the plot behind the movie, uh, The Accountant with Ben Affleck. Okay, so the, now, winding forward, having done a deal with the feds, you, you're now a fraud buster. Uh, I'm, uh, I'd like to call myself a fraud critic. <laughs> well, uh, uh, the last time, uh, last time I, I, I met you in New York, 
Um, before we went out to uh, your local bar where you chatted up the waitress and, and showed, we, we'll, we'll come to the film later, what a, what a total ladies' man you are, um, you, you were saying you just got a cheque for a million dollars or something for busting a fraud. Yes, yes, but... That was yeah, to me, not to the waitress. The success, you weren't trying to impress success, me. The success in fraud busting, unfortunately, is far and few in between because today, in your country, even in our country, okay, uh, regulators are asleep at the wheel. Today, we've effectively decriminalized white-collar crime. Today, it's no longer a crime. It's what you would call a civil tort, uh, something to be litigated in the civil courts where people will, uh, will eventually pay a fine. I call it a tax on crime. So today, we're, today, today it, it, it's very, very hard to do real uh, fraud busting where people go to jail. In my case, even when I, when I, even when I did, when I, even when I was doing successful whistleblower work, nobody went to jail. I mean, just people paid fines and they, and they, and, and they, and they went on their merry way. So I'm very, I'm not, I'm not very idealistic when it comes to fraud busting uh, today. I think that pretty much today we live in the golden age of white collar crime, where today any schmuck uh, can uh, can do crime and avoid prison. Back in my day, it took effort to avoid prison. It took effort to stay out of jail. Today, pretty much, any, you got to be a real idiot if you go to jail today for doing white collar crime. Well, how should we change the system in, in you know, for accusy steps? Mandatory jail sentences? Well, well you got to you got to hire a bunch of guys in their 50s, not in their 20s, <laughs> to, work at, to work at the regulators. You need, you need more accountants, and, you need more forensic accountants instead of lawyers. And you need people with a five-year time horizon because that's how long it takes to thoroughly investigate a case and to bring charges and to do it the right way. In the Crazy Eddie case, for instance, Crazy Eddie's fell in 1987. That's when the fraud was discovered. The criminal case didn't go to trial until 1993. That's six years later. Today, prosecutors, regulators, they don't have that kind of time horizon. They don't have that kind of they don't have a five-year plan, a seven-year plan. All they want to do is the easy cases, the quick hits, the quick headlines, so they can go into private industry because they have a name for themselves. But isn't also a point about the regulators? Uh, I've made this thing before. I used to go out with a girl, and she was a very nice girl. Far too good for me. I treated her dreadfully. She's the sort of girl who wouldn't park on a double yellow line. But she's doing really well at the regulator in the UK because they employ people like her. They would never employ people like you or me, Sam. But we're the sort of people who could catch her, her villains. Yes. Because we know yes. how they you think. Know, you know, the FBI people that came after me and the SEC people, they were not ideologues, okay? They didn't, despise, they didn't despise me as a human being. I'm not trying to give them a compliment. They were non... The, the key word here is in professionalism, and doing professional sleuthing is being non-judgmental, okay? They wanted to get the job done, so they worked with me. I, uh, that helped me avoid prison, but it also helped them get the, the, the $100 million crime, recover $100 million for the victims that they would not have been able to do. Uh, uh, they were pragmatic. They, they understood the way the world worked, that sometimes you have to ally with the bad guys in order to catch the bigger bad guys. The problem that you have today is people um, that, 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 that regulators are either lazy or they don't want to put in the effort, or they're afraid to work with some of the bad guys to catch some of the bigger bad guys. Uh, today, we're, we're, as I said, we're living in a world where pretty much any schmuck, <coughs> any schmuck with a keyboard can become a white-collar criminal and be successful at it.
and avoid prison. We'll come to Elon Musk shortly. Now, um, the uh, uh, crazy Eddie story, uh, you've been saying for a while there's going to be a film made of it, uh, obviously with Brad Pitt playing Sam Antar. He's not um, handsome enough. He's not handsome okay, okay. Uh, I'm trying to think who, 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 I don't know anyone who could do justice there, to you. That's, why, that's what's holding up the whole thing. There's not anybody with nearly my good looks that could... Uh, that can play me in the movie, and they're they're choosing. They're actually they're 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 uh, they're, they're, they're looking they're, they're looking around. Actually, I'll tell you a secret. I won't tell you the name, but one of the people considered for a role is a British actor for Sam Anton. Uh, it's got to be either Daniel Craig, James Bond, uh, someone someone of that ilk. I thought. Well, it's like it's got to be somebody that can talk with a Brooklyn accent and shed the British accent. Let's put it that way. Right. Okay. Um, in the film, are you? Do you have a role in it? I don't have a role in it. I have no desire to have a role in it. I am an associate producer, which is a, which is really a fancy word uh, for uh, a consultant. Um, they're consulting me about the, about what happened and how things happen, and to make sure that the movie stays true to the uh, story. Do you get casting couch rights with the actresses? What? Uh, uh, do you get to check out the actresses? Well, I've, I've, I've promised every female bartender in New York that they can play the role of my ex-wife in the movie. <laughs> um, when, do you, when do we expect filming to take place? Uh, sometime in October, but when it comes to Hollywood, uh, October of 2019 can be October in 2027. No, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but with Hollywood, there's no... Um, it, it, they're not as structured as I am accustomed to being structured. But it's, and it's going to be filmed on location in New York? On location in New York, and you can come to the set and watch them film it. I'd love to. The problem is New York's changed so much. It used to be sort of fun and dirty and grimy and edgy, and now it's, uh, it's full of wankers with beard, hipster people, and it's, it's changed a lot. It's posh. Oh, that's, that's, that, that's true. Actually, New York has changed in a lot of ways, and really for the negative. Um, the city has uh, undergone a transformation under this crazy socialist, Bill de Blasio, who is an absentee mayor. Well, probably you're better off with being out of town than in town. But uh, this whole city has gotten, uh, has gotten a lot uh, worse in the last five, uh, six or seven years since he started being mayor. Now, I, I shall brave myself. I brave it. I shall come over. Um, now, let's t turn to uh, the market today. You say it's a golden age of white-collar crime. Uh, would you say that, I mean, do you take a view on whether the stock market is overvalued or not? No, because I don't invest in the stock market. I am, um, I am, st I still have the same mindset I had uh, 30 years ago when I was a, a regular neighborhood thug. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it would be too tempting for you. You know what it is? I, I know a lot of smart people that go long on stocks and short on stocks, and I see the aggravation that they go through. And I see the amount of research that they put in, and they put in a lot of good research, long or short, and things don't go their way. I think at this stage in life, I don't think a career of me investing in the stock market is worth my while, or the amount of time that I have to spend to make the excess returns is is a good use of my time. So me, I'm pretty much of a, a of a person that uh, will keep his money pretty much in cash. I'm not. Really, it's, un I'm it's, not it's under your. Guys. It's under your mattress. I know you told me about it's under that. My, it's under my. Actually, it's under my mattress and in my ceilings. Is I mean, is, is, no, are you not tempted? 
I mean, you've served your time. People know that you're a good guy now. Um, surely the world's of uh, IPOing a Bitcoin company or a cannabis stock. Does it not? Are you not tempted to get back into uh, the world of frontline securities? Uh, no, because every time, every time I get too tempted, it, it always has a bad result for me. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like when you're an alcoholic, you stay away from the bar. When you're a white-collar criminal, you stay away from the bank. Do you? Do, well, there are two sorts of white-collar criminals, aren't there? And I was discussing this today because we've had two major fraud stories in the UK. Uh, there is, I, I still think that most white-collar criminals are actually pretty decent guys. Yeah, They're the guys in accounts who just fudge numbers. Yeah. yeah, most of them are one-timers. Those are the people that have that one-time ethical lapse in judgment. They never set out to commit crime. They didn't go. But for me, it was a different life path. From when I was 14 years old, that's what I was. And that's, you know, that's still wired into me. What do I think? So the, 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 the 95% of fraudsters, they have this ethical lapse. They fudge the numbers somehow to meet quarterly targets. Then they have to fudge the next time. They have to fudge the next time. Eventually, they get caught and it ruins them. They're not really bad guys. Okay, they're criminals, but they're not really bad guys, are they? Right. They're not, they're not, for them, crime is really not a way of life. But I am on the other side. You see, pretty much 95% of us are situationally ethical. In other words, we choose which laws we're going to break and which laws we're going to keep. That doesn't mean that everybody that breaks the law is a criminal. You know, it was jaywalking, uh, riding past in the speed limit, you know, uh, doing things that are unethical but not necessarily legal. 95% of us fall in that category. It's called situationally ethical. Okay? Then you've got about 2 or 3% that are, you want to call them the pious ones, the ones that are going to heaven. And then you've got the 2 or 3% where crime is just a way of life. In the 2 or 3% where crime is a way of life, that's where you find the, the terrorists. Uh, the, uh, the Jeffrey Epstein's. Right. That's where you find and I'm not, I'm not Jeffrey Epstein or anything like that. That wasn't of that kind of stuff. But, uh, but when it comes, but I, you, you prefer kind of older girls. White collar crime and, 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 and uh, cooking the books was a way of life for me. It's wired in. Screwing, you know, it's wired in. So Is it uh, fun? It was fun when I did it. Of course, it's fun even talking about it. That's why I'd like to call myself more of a film as a fraud critic than a fraud buster. Because <laughs> I like commenting on other people's crimes and scams. I, I, I see it from a different point of view than most people think of it. One of the, one of the crimes that uh, has come up today is a, a company uh, in this country called uh, Gold Soccer Centers, which runs soccer pitches. Uh, uh, you, you know, um, uh, uh, and uh, they've admitted that actually their uh, annual accounts for the past decade have all been wrong. Uh, and that there have been a group of people systematically putting in the wrong numbers. Um, surely the auditors should have spotted this. Yes, they should have. But the problem, the problem is auditors are, are... I know in the United States, it's, I don't know if it's the same in the UK. In the United States, the company chooses the auditors. Yeah. They're picked by supposedly an independent committee of the board of directors, but the members of the independent committee are appointed by people that are not independent, are nominated by people who are not independent. Uh, you know, nowhere in the auditing literature in the United States, and you can speak for, for, the, for the UK, does a call of company that's being audited a target. They are called clients, and herein lies the problem. 
if the auditor calls you a client, how can they be truly auditing you? They're not. First of all, the way audits are designed, they're really, in substance, reviews of information. All they're doing is looking for grammatical errors or typos on, on, on a microphone. was pretty punchy wasn't it that was part one of my interview with sam antar we've got an awful lot to talk about it's very easy with sam he's very talkative i'm quite talkative uh, we both love new york both love brooklyn more than manhattan and we have so much in common uh, not that i'm saying i'm a crook you know but we've got a lot in common uh, uh, principally a love of busting frauds uh, part two will be coming up in the next couple of weeks where we'll move on to things including all matters Tesla. I have suggested numerous times to Elon Musk on Twitter that if he wants to make Tesla profitable, uh, then all he needs to do is make Sam his chief financial officer. Uh, what could possibly go wrong? Sam could make anything profitable. Whether it's actually profitable, generating cash is another matter. We bears come in for an awful lot of stick. I do a daily bear podcast, a bear cast on share profits. I'm afraid you have to pay $5.99 a month to listen to that, where I expose all sorts of wrongdoings, aggressive accounting, uh, outright fraud, uh, companies telling lies, uh, companies needing to raise money and not being entirely honest with their shareholders about it. Uh, I also uh, write the odd article, quite a lot of articles really, uh, exposing that sort of thing. You get a lot of stick from people for uh, exposing things. How dare you destroy a great British company? How dare you uh, pull down the share price by pointing out the company needs to raise money urgently? How dare you uh, pull down the company's share price uh, by reporting a rumor that there was about to be a big dossier uh, uh, released on the company? You get all this sort of shit. If you were to uh, just run stories saying, uh, shares in so-and-so crap company are really cheap. Oh, I hear a rumor that the company's going to get a takeover. If you were to run all that positive stuff, nobody would bat an eyelid. Uh, when you run negative stuff, I think I'm saving my readers money, which is a good thing. I can warn you about placings. You can get out. I can warn you about aggressive accounting. So you can get out. I can warn you about fraud. So you can get out. I can report rumors that there's a big dossier coming on a company. So you can get out. I save my readers money. And also, uh, by bringing down share prices, which are grossly inflated, either by aggressive promotion uh, or by outright fraud, I help to prevent capital misallocation. In the markets, which is also a good thing, would you rather that investors' money went into bad companies where they're never going to see a return? Think DeLorean, uh, where no jobs will be created for the long term in a sustainable manner, or into good companies, which would grow, be profitable, make money for investors, and create real long-term sustainable jobs? Naturally, it's the latter, but that can only happen if people like me expose fraud and wrongdoing. But we get no thanks for it. Uh, for warning this week of a big dossier which was likely to come out and a rumour about which company it was going to be about. I had numerous people saying they're going to report me to the FCA. I know the FCA are great admirers of my work. They've told people that. Uh, they love my work. Uh, they love seeing fraud exposed. 
They don't do anything about it because they're a bunch of useless tossers, but they like it anyway. Anyhow, if I had a quid for every time I'd been reported to the FCA for exposing a fraud or an overpromote or a placing or some such information, if I had a quid for that, I'd be a multi-multi-millionaire. Sadly, I don't. If you'd like to hear my stuff during the week and you can't wait seven days for another uh, uh, Share Profits radio edition, it's very simple. Sign up to Share Profits. It only costs you $5.99 a month. And for that, you get seven bear casts a week, one a day. Uh, you also get uh, an average of about 60 other articles a week. So it works out at less than 2p per article. Uh, it's a small price to pay. It's less than a large glass of wine in a decent London uh, restaurant or, or bar. And that gets you a whole month's coverage, far less than the, cover, uh, the cost of buying a daily newspaper or subscribing to a newspaper online. But we're first with the stories. They just uh, report our stories afterwards, uh, days afterwards in some cases. So I hope you will sign up to Share Profits. It's always good to have more paying customers. If you don't, you're a cheapskate. Uh, but I'll be back with another podcast, especially for you cheapskates, here on Share Profits Radio in a week's time. Speak to you then. Can't you see the spear points gleaming? See.